Welcome back to Neurology Exam Prep from Yale Neurology. My name is Safa Abdel-Hakim. I'm a PGY3 in the Neurology program here at Yale. And I have with me Dr. Jeff Dewey, who will continue to teach us about the uh, lower limbs uh, anatomy. Hey, everybody. (laughs) Good to be back. Yeah, thank you for coming again. Good to have you. Um, as we as we all become experts at peripheral nerve anatomy, <laughs> you will continue to help us map out that anatomy uh, that will be useful for examination as well as clinical evaluation. How are you, Jeff? I'm good. We should always do these first thing in the morning. I'm like hyper caffeinated right now, so if I'm talking really fast, just like slow me down. Well, I'm hypo caffeinated. <laughs> so oh my goodness. <laughs> Uh, let's see how that's going to work. We might we'll cough. average out. It'll be perfect. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. So uh, we, I, th- I like this sort of discussion-based format uh, that we've established over the upper extremity pods. I think we're going to try and cram the lower extremity into one uh, just because it's, a, I think, a little bit less functionally complicated than the upper extremity. Uh, and in particular, also, I think the lumbosacral plexus, while complicated, is a little bit lower yield. So we'll spend a little less time on it than we did in the upper extremity. Let's just review though, uh, the basic anatomy starting from the spinal cord and sort of how that works. So as a reminder, uh, we begin really with the the spinal cord itself. So the alpha motor neuron, uh, even though it's the beginning of the lower motor neuron is within the spinal cord. It is a central structure, sort of. So, but that's really where the peripheral nervous system starts. Uh, And that motor neuron cell body then sends out the motor nerve axon from the ventral horn, which enters the neural foramen. Just inside uh, that foramen then is also the dorsal root ganglion of the sensory neuron. And that's a bipolar neuron that sends one axon back to the dorsal aspect of the spinal cord and then the other out uh, to the periphery. Those two roots join as they leave the foramen and become the spinal nerve root. Uh, And then that very quickly divides into two rami. So there's the ventral ramus, which wraps around to the spinal cord and innervates the paraspinal muscles and the skin over the spine. And then there's the dorsal ramus, which proceeds into the lumbosacral plexus and then out to the extremity. So we're going to spend a lot of our time focusing on the latter, but Safa, just remind us, what what is the clinical implication of this anatomy? So the paraspinal muscles are the most proximal muscles uh, that are innervated by any spinal nerve roots. If you have a process that will damage the, the spinal nerve root right from the beginning of its course, you will impact the paraspinal muscle. Whereas if it's something that's coming kind of from the back up, like a length dependent process, then you will spare the paraspinal muscles. Exactly. And I would throw into that category entrapment neuropathy uh, as well as something that's more distal that would spare the paraspinals. And this is really important in EMGing in particular. I think if you lose paraspinal muscles at one nerve root level, functionally, there's probably going to be no difference in terms of extension of the spine. But Oftentimes, not always, uh, innervation in the paraspinals uh, is key to diagnosing radiculopathy. It's not a necessity, but it's very, very helpful uh, because we know that there's only a short distance traveled to innervate those, uh, those muscles. And of course, the other point when this is relevant is looking for uh, motor neuronopathies or diseases of the alpha motor neuron itself, because obviously that will affect the proximal muscles very early and can help distinguish from a length-dependent so just a little clinical pearl there, but obviously we're here to focus on anatomy too. So let's focus on the path of the uh, dorsal ramus, 
which goes to innervate the lower extremity through the lumbosacral plexus. So as with the upper extremity, the nerve roots combine adjacent to the lumbar and sacral spine to form the lumbosacral plexus. Uh, it's more complex than the brachial plexus, partly because it's formed by a greater number of spinal levels. So it's generally considered to be L1 through S3, although in a lot of people, the T12 nerve root actually contributes as well. And I think partly for ease of understanding, it's often split into the lumbar plexus and the sacral plexus. So the lumbar plexus is L1 through L5, or possibly T12 through L5. And then the sacral plexus is L5 through S3. So you note that there is a little bit of overlap at that L5 nerve root, which contributes to both plexi. Uh, but it's, it's some find it easier to think of them separately. There are a few pearls, I think, that are worth knowing. So all the nerves we talk about today are the terminal branches of the lumbosacral plexus. So things like the femoral nerve, the obturator nerve, the sciatic nerve, uh, which is really just the terminal trunk of the whole sciatic plexus with contribution from L5. We're going to talk about a few nerves that come directly off the plexus, which are always good to know because they're nice clinical deal breakers, if you will. So one is the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, and we'll talk about the implications of that later. Uh, another is the posterior cutaneous nerve of the thigh, and we can talk about that a little bit too. But almost everything else is a branch of one of the major nerves that comes off the plexus. So when I think about the anatomy of the leg, I think there's a, a number of ways to organize it. One is proximal to distal, one is anterior posterior. I like to think about it in terms of just major joint motions of the leg. The leg is more of a, a gross motor extremity. It doesn't have the fine control for most of us, unless you train yourself very well, that the upper extremity has. So let's think about this as a general heuristic. I think, you know, as we learned in the upper extremity, there are exceptions to all of these rules and uh, it's not 100% uh, reliable, but it will serve you very well in most clinical settings to just organize your thoughts like this. So Safa, what do you think of as sort of the most basic directions of movement in the leg? Hip flexion, hip extension, hip abduction, hip adduction, uh, knee extension and knee flexion, dorsiflexion of the ankle, plantar flexion of the ankle, inversion and eversion of the ankle. That's about it. Toe, the toe yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, toes flexion and toes extension. Yeah, and that's nice, right? We don't have to worry about like opposition and you know all that stuff in the foot because we're we just don't have opposable toes. But that's pretty much it. And these should sound familiar to all of you because this is what we examine when we look at somebody clinically. So this is why I find this organization scheme very helpful, is because you can directly tie abnormalities in your clinical motor exam to basic. Uh, neuroanatomy of the lower extremity. So let's let's review this basically in the order that you said it, because I think this is the order a lot of us would examine the patient. So we'll focus on the hips, then the knees, then the ankles, and then the toes. So let's go to your first one you mentioned, uh, which were the hips. And I, I usually start with hip flexion in my exam. So Safa, what do you think of as the nerves and, and possibly spinal levels responsible for hip flexion? So, so these are direct branches to the, uh, our iliopsoas muscles. And as far as spinal level, be um, L1 to L2. Yeah, exactly. So this is actually an important exception. You know, I love the exceptions in anatomy because they help us distinguish between different localizations. So the iliopsoas is really directly innervated by the spinal levels themselves. It, it's not considered uh, something innervated off the plexus. And there, you can think of some analogous muscles uh, in the upper extremity. For instance, the dorsal scapular nerve is really just a, an extension of the nerve root 
although it travels a much longer distance, in the, in the, the trunk, really, where we're talking about, the iliopsoas is nestled right up against the spine. So there's a very, very, very short distance for the nerve to travel before it innervates the muscle. It's almost equivalent to a paraspinal in terms of its distance traveled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and great. And so, I, you know, this is a long muscle. It, extend, it really, the belly of the muscle is up against the spine, and then it extends down under the ingual ligament, and it, it puts its tendon onto uh, the femoral bone itself. But I agree completely with your anatomy there. So again, just to review, it's direct branches, L1, L2. Some people uh, will say there's an L3 contribution. They're probably right, but it's not major. Mm-hmm. All right. And then what about hip adduction? So that would be um, any, I always think of anything immediately at the thigh and um, adduction has to be an obturator nerve, yeah. um, which is mainly L2, L4. Yeah. So that's great. So the obturator nerve uh, is one of the shorter nerves, uh, you know, short, as far as the leg goes. Uh, and it's contributed to by L2 through 4. Uh, and it's really predominantly L2 and 3. So it's perhaps a little more proximally dominant than the femoral nerve, which we'll talk about next. Uh, and it innervates uh, really the adductor compartment of the medial thigh. So that's the adductor brevis, the adductor longus, the gracilis, and then the adductor magnus. Because there's always exceptions, uh, it's just worth noting that the adductor magnus is also partially innervated by the sciatic nerve. So you, even with a total obturator nerve injury, you may still have a little bit of adduction thanks to that adductor magnus. But in general, yes, I like the heuristic that uh, hip adduction or adduction is an obturator function, and it's really a high lumbar L2-3 and some degree of L4. All right, what about hip abduction? So that would be the superior gluteal nerve. Um, mm-hmm. We think about the levels of L4 to S1. So we're moving a little bit down. Uh, and I like our order because it's almost like also correlating with where their um, spinal level is. Yeah, exactly. So really we're innervated in the leg like we still walk on all fours. In other words, we walk with our hips flexed 90 degrees and then it's almost a straight line down the leg. Uh, so it, it does follow this pattern mostly. It's a little less reliable in the arm, but I like your point. Uh, so yes, hip abduction is really a function of the superior gluteal nerve. And what we're talking about here is the gluteus medius and the gluteus minimus, uh, as well as the tensor fascia lata. So in terms of the lateral leg, uh, really the TFL uh, has the longest extension along the leg, but part of the gluteal uh, area is the gluteus medius and minimus. And these are L4-5, so a little bit lower down, and some degree of S1. Um, and, and I'm sorry, Jeff, the superior gluteal nerve um, it comes directly out of the plexus? So yeah, they're direct branches off of the sacral plexus in the posterior division. So let's then go on to hip extension, the last sort of cardinal motion of the hip in terms of the, uh, the anterior-posterior motion. So uh, what nerve and uh, nerve roots do you think of as responsible for hip extension, Safa? That would be L5, S1, S2. And as we just talked about the superior gluteal nerve, this would be the inferior gluteal nerve. So the, the superior is more the abduction, whereas the extension would be the inferior gluteal nerve. Perfect. And that's, a, that's pretty much the next branch off of uh, the sacral plexus from the superior gluteal nerve, uh, also in the posterior uh, division. Okay. All right. So uh, then let's talk about uh, knee extension. So uh, I think of knee extension as um, the femoral nerve. To extend the knee, we require the L2, L4, which is the patellar reflex, essentially. 
Yeah, exactly. So I like your clinical correlate that we should remember our reflexes represent peripheral nerves and nerve roots as well. Uh, but yes, so the femoral nerve, its main job is knee extension, innervates the quadriceps muscles, so the rectus femoris, and then the vastus groups. And it is predominantly L3-4, but also contributions from L2. So similar to the obturator, but perhaps a little more representative of those lower nerve roots in the L2-4 through four group. And then as you said, there, our first deep tendon reflex of the leg that we've encountered is the patellar reflex, which really represents uh, the femoral nerve and the L2-4 through four nerve roots. Great. And then what about knee flexion? So we think of uh, knee flexion as the sciatic nerve. So I always think of the femoral as the more anterior with the knee extension and the sciatic is the other way around, the knee flexion. And that would be further down in, in our spinal level. So that would be S1, S2. Yeah, beautiful. So the hamstrings are sciatic innervated. Now we, we were kind of taught that the sciatic is just one big nerve, but it actually is the perineal and tibial nerves smushed together and each of them sort of gives off branches on their way down. So the hamstrings, which is really the biceps femoris, so there's two major hamstring muscles when we talk about the, the most superficial muscles in the back of the leg. And then the biceps femoris has two heads because it's biceps. So the long head is innervated by the tibial division of the sciatic, and the short head is innervated by the perineal division of the sciatic. Uh, and this is very helpful when you're looking for, to localize a perineal neuropathy, for instance, because you have this proximal muscle above the knee that is perineal innervated. Uh, and so you can compare that to the lower perineal muscles, which we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, and see, try to figure out you know, where this lesion is. So it's a nice clinical correlate uh, for knowing this anatomy. Other muscles that we sort of uh, include in that group would be the semitendinosus and the semimembranosus. Mm -hmm. And as you said, they're really predominantly S1, S2 with some contribution from L5. And the adductor magnus. Yes, thank you for reminding me. So the sciatic does go off and give that little branch to the adductor magnus as well. All right, so then let's move on to the ankle. It's nice when we have a hinge joint when we have to talk about two directions. Uh, but now we're back to sort of a multi-directional system of uh, joints in the ankle. So what about ankle dorsiflexion? So the dorsiflexion is a deep peroneal function, and that's the L4 and L5. Yeah, exactly. So the muscle we always think of really is doing the, the lion's share of the work here is the tibialis anterior. Uh, and that's running right along the front of the tibia, hence the name. And it's innervated by the deep branch of the perineal nerve. So you think about the sciatic uh, coming down as this trunk, remembering that it's actually a two-lane highway. And then right as you get into the popliteal fossa, that splits and it forms the tibial and the perineal nerves. Uh, and so we're talking about the common perineal, which is that perineal division of the sciatic and then that branches around or at the fibular head as it wraps around the outside of the knee into the deep and the superficial. So the, the deep's primary motor job is to innervate the tibialis anterior as well as a muscle in the foot that we're going to talk about shortly. So then let's talk about uh, ankle eversion. In other words, sort of going duck footed or pushing the outside of the foot outward. So, so what nerve do you think about for that, Safa? So just like we talked about the deep peroneal nerve, then we, um, which dives a little bit deeper than the one that's more superficial, would just kind of wrap around the fibular head and give us the ankle eversion. So yeah. The superficial peroneal nerve, and that will be L5S1. Exactly. So already we're noticing a little bit of a pattern, which is that the deep and superficial peroneal branches 
have different nerve root contributions, but sort of overlap with L5. And that becomes clinically relevant, which we'll talk about in a minute. But yes, the superficial perineal nerve's primary motor job is ankle eversion. Uh, and so that's through the perineus group, the perineus longus, tertius, and brevis. And the superficial perineal nerve in particular innervates the perineus longus and brevis. So there is a little, little bit of contribution to ankle eversion from the deep perineal branch through the perineus tertius. So again, your body builds in these redundancies, but we're going to focus on the general heuristic that foot eversion or ankle eversion is served by the superficial perineal and is predominantly an L5 uh, with some S1 contributions. So then let's talk about the opposite direction, which is ankle inversion. So that would be the tibial nerve? Yeah. Uh, and, and that would be L4, L5? Yeah. Great. Just like the just like the inver uh, just like the inversion. So I always think of the dorsiflexion. The inversion is going together. Um, yes. Same sort of distribution. Yeah. So it's it's interesting, right? Dorsiflexion and inversion go together in that they're both L four five muscles, but dorsiflexion and eversion go together in that they're both perineal muscles. So this is a little bit paradoxical, but it actually is very helpful to us as clinicians. And I keep uh, sort of teasing this clinical correlate that we're going to get to in a minute, but it's probably the highest yield uh, moment of this entire podcast. So hang in there. Uh, so yes, the foot inversion is served primarily by the tibialis posterior, which is nestled in behind the tibia, and it's a tibial innervated muscle, but L4-5 nerve roots. Good. And then lastly, what about ankle plantar flexion or sort of pushing downward or standing up on one's tiptoes, for instance? So that would be the, the, the tibial nerve again, um, and that would be S1, S2, however. Yes. So it's serving the posterior group of the calf, which is predominantly the gastroc and also the soleus, uh, and that is extending the ankle or plantar flexing the ankle via the tibial nerve, the tibial division of the sciatic, and is a S1, S2 predominant uh, muscle. And then there's gross toe motion, now, obviously nowhere near our finger control, so toe extension, what do you think of there, Safa? So for toe extension, that's a deep peroneal nerve, L5-S1? Yeah, exactly. So this is what the deep peroneal nerve goes on to do after it innervates the tibialis anterior. And the main muscle contributing to this is the extensor digitorum brevis on top of the foot. Again, notice that I said main muscle. This is what you're really going to see clinically. Uh, and you can actually see it and probably feel it on yourself. It's on the lateral aspect of the dorsum of the foot. And if you wiggle your toes, you'll feel it contracting and relaxing. And it's a great place to look for atrophy due to neuropathy because it's usually pretty prominent unless someone has lower extremity swelling. Sort of the, I think of it as the FDI or the first dorsal neurosis of the foot. It's a very prominent muscle that's easy to observe and palpate clinically. Its function is to extend the toes. So what about toe flexion? So toe flexion would be the tibial nerve, S1 and S2. Yeah. And we think of these as the flexor digitorum group. So there's a longus, flexor digitorum longus, uh, and a flexor halysis longus. There's also an abductor halysis and some other intrinsic foot muscles that are harder to test clinically that are innervated by this tibial nerve. And really, technically, it's the plantar nerve. So the tibial nerve, after it innervates the ankle plantar flexion group, travels behind the medial malleolus through the tarsal tunnel and then divides, during that sort of travel through the tunnel, divides into a few different branches. And the two motor branches to the foot are the plantar nerves, medial and lateral. And that's what's innervating the flexor group. So the plantar aspect of the foot 
and also the medial aspect that moves the toes. Excellent. So actually, I know I mentioned that comment before, and you said that we have to think about the the, the spinal levels and the and the peripheral nerves when it comes to the the four movements of the ankle a little bit differently. But as you were talking, I noticed that clinically sometimes I always think of the peroneal as the dorsiflexion, the eversion, and the toe extension, and all the movements that are kind of up and out, and the tibial as the inversion and movements that are more downward, so like flexion and toe flexion. I think that that will be even better to think of more than the <laughs> and we just sort of hope to remember the, the, the levels, but I think that that makes better sense clinically. Yeah, so now we're there. This is the moment you've all been waiting for. So the yeah. foot drop consult. Uh, you're going to get it. It's one of the best because if you know what you're doing, you will feel completely confident in what you're looking at. So at some point, perhaps today, Safa, because you're on ED call, you might get called to see somebody with a foot drop and they're going to want to know what to do. Well, sometimes those are stroke codes. And exactly. Because I so can't. You, you never know how you're going to get it, uh, <laughs> but you got to be ready for it. And all, all you have to do is walk in the door and test all four directions of the ankle and do the rest of a neurologic exam. But really, the four directions of the ankle are going to help you determine, as long as it's just an isolated foot drop, where this is coming from. So let's think about the organization of the leg again. We said that foot dorsiflexion is perineal L4-5, foot inversion is tibial L4-5, foot eversion is perineal L5-S1, and foot plantar flexion is tibial S1-S2. So if somebody has just a problem with foot dorsiflexion, that's easy. It's a deep perineal neuropathy. What if somebody has a problem with dorsiflexion and eversion only? So that would mean that the lesion is, uh, is a bit proximal, so that mm-hmm. would be common peroneal. Yeah, so that the only thing those two have in common is that they're common perineal because uh, dorsiflexion is L4-5, eversion is L5-S1, so I guess it could be an L5 radiculopathy, but we can rule that out in just a moment. But the thing that just those two have in common is that they're branches of the common perineal nerve, one's deep, one's superficial. So we talked about one other L5 innervated muscle, uh, and that's the tibialis posterior. So you're often wondering, does someone have an L5 radiculopathy or a common perineal neuropathy? So if the tibialis posterior is involved and there's ankle inversion weakness, what would that imply, Safa? So that would be an L5 radiculopathy. Yeah, because that's the only way with a single lesion that you're going to get weakness in all three of those directions because they're two separate nerves that, even, that travel separately even at the level of the sciatic trunk. But certainly after the knee, they travel very far from each other, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, and so really the only thing they have in common is an L5 nerve root. And then if all four directions are involved, so dorsiflexion, eversion, inversion, and plantar flexion, what lesion does that imply? So that would imply that you have a, a, the nerve that groups um, the, the peroneal and the tibial together, which is the sciatic nerve. Like You, you just got it. Yep. So then you're looking at sciatic territory, and that's when your study of the knee flexors and the hip extensors becomes important. Uh, hip extensors a little less so because a lot of that is directly branched uh, from the lumbosacral plexus, but that can help you, you know, be, be sure that you're not missing a proximal multi-radiculopathy. And then really it's whether the knee flexors are involved that helps you localize proximal versus distal sciatic nerve. Great. So just to review, you get called for a foot drop and the patient has dorsiflexion and eversion weakness. That's common perineal. Dorsiflexion, eversion, and inversion weakness. That's an L5 radiculopathy. 
And then weakness in all four directions is a sciatic trunk or a sciatic neuropathy. So lock that into your brains, write it down in your, your cheat sheets. That will serve you well someday. And I would not be surprised if it came up on a exam uh, at some point. All right. So we've talked a lot about the motor nerves. Let's back up and think a little bit about the sensory functions of the leg. You'll notice that we left out a couple of other functions of the leg and sort of specific muscles. It's not because they're not important. For instance, hip internal rotation, external rotation, function of the sartorius, things like that. They just uh, are a little less testable at the bedside. They're, they're probably more relevant for EMGers. And oftentimes, lesions in those motions alone are pretty rare. So I just think they're lower yield and I want to focus on the, the high yield anatomy because we're doing this without pictures. So we should really pick, pick and choose. So with that being said, let's move on to the sensory innervation of the leg. Um, I do think it's worth reviewing a map of the dermatomes. We're not going to cover them here because they're really difficult to do without a picture. Uh, but just think of us as bent over 90 degrees at the hip uh, and then draw lines down the leg. Or you could look at a quadruped animal like your, your dog or cat if you have a pet, and, and they're really innervated in sort of a segmental function running from uh, rostral to caudal. Also be aware that there are different dermatome maps out there, and that's because the dermatomes are a little bit fuzzy. Uh, there's a lot of overlap, and really a pure, pure anesthesia from a dermatomal lesion is rare because you're going to get overlap from other uh, nerve roots. So use the pictures. I think we're going to leave it at that and talk just about the peripheral sensory nerves, which can cause more patchy uh, sensory loss in the leg. So let's go back to a nerve I mentioned at the beginning, and it's a good one to know because it comes with its own clinical correlate. So this often uh, is seen clinically as a patient who comes in and says they have a numb or a scratchy or a burning sensation on the outside of their thigh. So Safi, you've probably heard this consult before. What nerve does that make you think of? That's the lateral cutaneous nerve of the thigh, which yep. we spoke about as coming directly from the plexus. Yeah, so you mentioned a really important anatomic correlate. And yes, this is the lateral cutaneous nerve of the thigh, also called the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve. And that condition is often known as the myralgia parasthetica, mer meaning leg, algia meaning pain, and parasthetica meaning numbness or paresthesias. So it's a descriptive diagnostic term. And it's important because the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve is its own nerve. It travels separately from the femoral nerve. And it actually travels much more laterally as it dives under the inguinal ligament. So it's very susceptible to entrapment. And the common things that can entrapment are things that push on the inguinal ligament. So weight gain, but also pregnancy, tight pants, work belts, and crossing of the legs in sort of an extreme position, which some people have as a bad habit myself included, which is why I got myralgia parasthetica as a medical student, because I bought some cheap dress pants that didn't fit very well, and I crossed my legs a lot. And I noticed one day that I had a sandpapery feeling on the outside of my leg, uh, which thankfully resolved fairly quickly. So uh, anyway, it's a very common condition and can happen to just about anybody, uh, but fortunately it's temporary. And the reason nothing else in the femoral group is affected is because the femoral nerve travels separately. It, it travels uh, through the inguinal area more medially and is therefore a bit more protected uh, and also travels with the artery and nerve in a much bigger space. I'm sorry, the artery and vein. A, I've had this in an OB consult for two postpartum women. So that's how all I'm the time pushing yep. and, and the, the kind of um, movement of the hips as they do it. Yeah. So it's a good one to know. So then what about the rest of sort of the anteromedial thigh? 
So the, the medial, as I always remember, is the obturator nerve. Uh, yeah, nice. So there's another exception here. I love exceptions. So the proximal medial nerve, and really over the obturator muscle group, which is kind of nice, is the obturator uh, nerve. And so numbness of the proximal medial thigh is generally obturator. Now, patients who have a genitofemoral neuropathy can have numbness that extends a little bit into the medial thigh, but also involves one aspect of the genitals on the affected side. So it's important when someone has medial thigh numbness to ask them if their genitals are involved. If they're not uh, and it's proximal, it's probably obturator. Otherwise, it's probably genitofemoral. Uh, and then what about the rest of sort of the anterior thigh and maybe the distal medial thigh? So that would be the femoral nerve. Yep. And the femoral gives off both anterior and medial femoral cutaneous branches that go to that area. Now, we've, we've joked about this before, but the femoral innervation does not stop at the knee. And it's sort of a, an unfortunate design for memorization purposes. But there's one longer sensory extension off the femoral nerve. And what is that? That is the saphenous. Which the is saphenous nerve. I feel like that's everybody's nemesis on a sensory exam because it just doesn't make sense that the femoral innervates below the knee, but it does. So the saphenous nerve branches off right about the same time as all the other femoral nerves, but does nothing really until it gets the medial knee and downward. And then it innervates the medial aspect of the calf as well, pretty much all the way down to and including the medial malleolus. And then after that point, the tibial nerve sort of takes over in medial sensory innervation. So it's important to remember that a femoral sensory neuropathy or a femoral neuropathy with sensory motor consequences can have a pretty wide swath of innervation affected. And then lastly, what about the posterior thigh? So it, it's going to be straightforward. It's going to be the posterior cutaneous nerve of the thigh. Excellent. I like how these are named. It makes it much easier. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's another one. That's a direct branch, this time off the sacral plexus. So again, you can have just this wedge of sensory loss without any motor function being affected because this is a pure sensory nerve. All right, so let's talk about the leg below the knee. We already said that the medial aspect of the leg below the knee and the ankle are innervated by the saphenous nerve. So what about the anterior and lateral aspects of the lower leg? So that would be the, the trunk of the sciatic nerve. Yeah, and I, I like that you really localized it the sciatic because uh, your, your question when someone says anterolateral numbness is Everywhere or most everywhere, because there are a few different nerves that actually contribute to that. And the only thing they have in common is the sciatic trunk. So most of the anterior lateral leg is the superficial perineal nerve. And if you looked at a picture of the two, you might think that that really covered everything that the sciatic nerve covers, but there are a few exceptions. So the superficial perineal nerve covers the anterior shin uh, on the lateral aspect, but overlaps with the saphenous nerve, and then covers the lateral shin and, and calf, but does not cover the first interspace of the toes. So what is the first interspace of the toes covered by? That's my favorite deep peroneal. Yes. So the deep peroneal, for some reason, just <laughs> innervates the skin in the first toe interspace. So you have to poke somebody with a pin right between their big toe and second toe if you want to test the deep peroneal nerve. But it's important because that's how you determine if something is common perineal versus just superficial perineal. And then, of course, the sciatic nerve also gives rise to the tibial nerve. So what does the tibial nerve innervate? So the tibial nerve will be what's left. So uh, except for the distance that the deep perineal covers, that will be the rest of the toes and the, the sole of the foot. Yeah. So the most important functions of the tibial sensory 
divisions are the sole of the foot. And that's through the, the two plantar nerves that I mentioned earlier, which kind of split the foot the same way the hand is split. So the medial plantar nerve takes the medial two thirds of the foot, the big second, third, and half of the fourth toes, as well as the sole of the foot, with the exception of the heel. And then the lateral plantar nerve covers half of the fourth and the fifth toe and the sole of the foot, again, with the exception of the heel. And as you mentioned, the tips of the toes are also innervated by the plantar nerves with the exception of that first toe inner space, which is deep perineal. And then the bottom of the heel itself is innervated by the calcaneal branch of the tibial nerve. So as a clinical correlate, you might sometimes hear about what's called tarsal tunnel syndrome, which is sort of a controversial diagnosis. But the theory is that it acts similar to carpal tunnel syndrome and that it's an entrapment neuropathy of the nerve as it travels through a connective tissue space. So there's a band of connective tissue from the medial malleolus to the side of the calcaneus. And between that or underneath that, between that and the bone, travels the tibial nerve. And within that space, it branches into these three branches, calcaneal, medial plantar, and lateral plantar. And the, the clinical presentation of Dressel Tunnel t- Syndrome is somebody who develops burning pain in their foot while they walk. And in particular, people who overpronate or, or who wear rigid boots around the ankle are susceptible to this because it puts more pressure on the nerve in that space. So you may hear this consult every once in a while. Now, the more common cause is probably plantar fasciitis, taking all comers, but you can sometimes demonstrate a relative difference in plantar nerve function from the affected foot to the non-affected foot on a nerve conduction study. So there is some uh, electrodiagnostic correlate to that. Unfortunately, these are technically limited studies, and so sometimes you get nothing in either foot and it gets a little complicated. But it's worth considering in somebody with burning foot pain, especially if they don't respond to conservative therapy for plantar fasciitis. So a little bit of a clinical diversion there, but I think it's a good one to know. And then there's one other little strip on the lateral side of the foot, and I think it's the other bane of people's existence in memorizing peripheral anatomy. But what nerve serves the lateral aspect of the foot and and some of the lateral malleolus? So that would be the sural nerve. And I always get them mixed up, and the way I remember it is sural lateral. Oh. Whereas the, our other one, the saphenous, is more the medial. Saphenous is smedial? Uh, well, well, saphenous does not have a correlation to medial. But it was oh, I see. So you just remember the serol is lateral. Serol yeah, lateral. One, okay. the saphenous. Yeah. I always think about them as the opposite yeah. sides. I like that. And the other reason people hate the serol nerve is because it's tough to remember where it comes from. But it actually is a combination of the perineal and tibial nerves. So the sciatic trunk bifurcates at the proximal popliteal fossa gives off its tibial and perineal branches, and then actually comes back together again. These two both contribute to the sural nerve, which runs down the posterolateral calf and then really does its work in the lateral foot. And when we're doing nerve conduction studies, we stimulate it in the distal posterolateral calf. And the patient will, will know you hit it because they get a zing on the outside of their foot. It's a good clinical correlate because this is a nice nerve to biopsy when we need a distal nerve biopsy. The only thing it does is this patch on the outside of the foot. So it has very few functional implications other than if someone develops a, a postoperative neuroma, which is a known complication. But for the patient who already has numbness in their feet, they often don't miss the sural nerve and it often it can give us a firm pathologic diagnosis in some cases of neuropathy. So don't forget that little nerve. It's very helpful. Wonderful. May I kind of quickly summarize all the sensory distributions? that Please we do. So let's start up and work our way down. So the lateral aspect of the thigh is going to be the lateral cutaneous nerve of the thigh, which comes directly off of the lumbar plexus. 
And then if you move a little bit more anterior medial, that would be your femoral nerve, which like we spoke about actually gives sensory distribution below the knee as well. And that would still be the medial aspect of the leg, as well as with the saphenous nerve to part of the medial aspect of the foot. A little bit more strictly medial in the thigh, that would be the obturator nerve. And strictly posterior of the thigh, that would be the posterior cutaneous nerve of the thigh, which comes off of the sacral plexus. And then if we move down to the leg, the dorsum of the foot and the lateral aspect of the leg, that would be the trunk of the sciatic nerve. And you can think about your peroneal and the superficial peroneal, which kind of maps out a little bit with its motor function. So you can kind of get that correlation. The deep peroneal is strictly the interspace between the big toe and the second toe. And then the tibial is what's left. And that would be the sole of the foot as well as the other toes. And then you would have the sural nerve, which is the lateral aspect of the foot. Did that you come at all? Yeah, you got it. Hopefully everyone uh, was able to form a mental image, but if not, the internet is full of mostly accurate diagrams. And again, we base this on, I think, the classic in peripheral neurology, which is aids to the examination of the peripheral nervous system. I don't get royalties from their book sales. I just think it's a cheap, very reliable guide to all of the things we've talked about in these th last three podcasts. So uh, with that, I think we've overwhelmed everybody for the day, but hopefully in a meaningful way. Any last points or questions, Safa? No, I think, um, I think that was a wonderful review and I really appreciate it. And I hope people can kind of form patterns. You can listen to this, this podcast multiple times, one while you're driving, one while you're looking at pictures, and hopefully it serves you well. Great. Well, listen, this was fun. Maybe someday we'll have to figure out another peripheral nerve podcast to do. Uh, I just want to about... summarize the motor. Yeah, so... For the motors, uh, again, just think about it in terms of the major motions that you do on your exam. So hip flexion is iliopsoas, direct branches, uh, L1 through 3. Hip extension is the gluteal nerve. Hip adduction, adduction, is the obturator nerve. Hip abduction is also the gluteal nerve. And those are the two divisions, superior and inferior. Knee uh, extension is the femoral nerve, L2 through 4. Knee flexion is the sciatic nerve, S1 predominantly S2. Foot dorsiflexion is deep perineal, L4-5. Foot eversion is superficial perineal, L5-S1. Foot inversion is tibial, L4-5. Foot plantar flexion is tibial, S1-S2. Toe extension is deep perineal, L5-S1. And toe flexion is also tibial or technically plantar nerves, and that's L5-S1-S2. So review those diagrams, make your charts, grab some safety pins and a reflex hammer and go get them. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeff. Take care. All right. All right. Bye-bye.